Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. When we come to the end of the life of Jesus Christ, it's interesting that the Gospel writers do not really explain a whole lot about the significance or the meaning of the cross. They simply record the historical facts and then leave it at that. They don't go into what the darkness is referring to. They don't talk about a whole lot about what His sacrificial atonement means for all people. You find all of that explanation when you get into the epistles. They leave it for the writers of those epistles. But when you come to the Gospels, you simply have a historical record. What happened on that final day? And so as we look at verses 21 through 37 this week, we'll see the loneliness of Christ's apparent defeat. And next week we'll revisit this passage and um, we'll examine more about what the Scriptures say about the meaning of the cross. So that'll be something we can look forward to next week. But this week we want to look at the loneliness of His apparent defeat beginning in verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among them themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified Him. The inscription of the charge against Him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with Him, one on His right and one on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And He was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes were mocking Him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He can't save Himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe Those who were crucified with Him were also insulting Him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, He's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus was mocked until his final breath, and he was judged by his father. And as a result, Jesus really died alone. We see at least three things in this passage. We'll break it down this way. The road to the cross in verses 21-26. through 26. 
the loneliness of the cross in verses 27 through 36, and then his death on the cross in verse 37. Let's begin with the road to the cross, beginning with verse 21. We see that they led him to Golgotha and that he was helped along to his place of execution in verse 21. The Jews took him outside of the city because they felt that that was unclean. In fact, that was part of their law that they could not perform any sorts of uh, uh, killing or there should not be any death inside of the city. So they did it outside of the walls of the city. And Jesus was forced to carry this beam of the cross, usually just the cross member that he would carry, and then he would be attached to the to the vertical post. He would carry that cross member which weighed about 30 to 40 pounds. And so he began towards Golgotha, but because of his weak condition, because of the beating that he took, he was not able to continue. And so one of the guards pulled off out from the crowd, this man Simon of Cyrene, and Mark seems to expect that his readers would know this man, or at least his children. Look at verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Mark probably records their names, Alexander and Rufus, that is, because they were probably believers, in early believers in Rome, and the church probably knew them. They probably knew these men and perhaps even their father Simon who actually carried the cross and so he records their names. The place of Christ's death is seen in verse 22. It's called Golgotha which is translated place of a skull. It was on a small hill near the city according to John chapter 19 verse 20 and it was named Golgotha because apparently it either looked like a skull or it was a place where lots of uh, death took place. Lots of people were executed. And so we see the place there in verse 22. And then in verse 23 we see this wine that is offered to him and its purpose. It says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is a very tasteless, a very disgustingly tasting wine because it's mixed with this incense. And um, many people believe that it was used as to create a numbing effect on the victim. And they did this because many of the victims were uh, antagonistic. They were trying to get out of their chains, perhaps, or they didn't want to go to the cross. And so they, they tried to go against the guards. And so they would give them this wine mixed with myrrh to, to numb them, to, to calm them down. But... But look at Luke chapter 23 because it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense for them to offer this to subdue him when he's already subdued. He doesn't even have the strength to carry his own beam. How could he fight against these Roman soldiers? But we see in Luke, Luke's record of this same event that the soldiers gave him this wine, they offered him this wine in order to mock him. Luke chapter 23, verse 36. They were saying all these things in verse 35, and then the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. So in verse 36, it says, In their mocking they gave him the sour wine. 
And they probably did that if we combine what's said in Mark's Gospel and combine what's said in Luke's Gospel. What we find is that, or we can surmise at least, that the soldiers were mocking him and saying, Oh, you're so powerful. Maybe we should give you this wine to subdue you and to calm you down so that you don't fight against us and overpower us. It's really a form of mockery, wasn't it? But we find that Jesus declined. Turn back to Mark chapter 15. Jesus refused to drink it. It says at the end of verse 23, but He did not take it. I believe that He did not take it because He wanted to have full use of His faculties so that He could endure the complete suffering of the cross. So that when He cried out, Why have You forsaken Me, My Father? Why have You given up on Me? Why have You abandoned Me? He was not saying this out of a drunken stupor or thoughtlessly mouthing words, but that He was speaking out of His heart something that He actually was experiencing. So He refused to take this sour wine which was stronger in nature and would cause Him to have an inhibition of His abilities. Then in verse 24, we see that His clothes were taken and they crucified Him and divided up His garments among themselves casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. The Roman soldiers had the right to the possessions of these victims, these convicted criminals. And because the clothing was more valuable than it is to us in this day, why would we want some dirty old clothes, we think? But for them, it was actually a valuable thing. They could make money on it. And so they divided it up into... One one piece for each person, one for each uh, soldier, and there were four of them, according to John chapter 19, verse 23. But that left one piece left over. Instead of tearing it and uh, giving up portions to each person, they decided to cast lots for it. And we know from other the other Gospels that this was in order to fulfill the Scriptures that said that they would cast lots for His garments. Then in verse 25, we see that he, he hung there to die. It was the third hour when they crucified Him. So He's made it down the road. Simon has brought his cross to the place where he would be executed. And now he's put on the cross at the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m. for us. Third hour after dawn is, is the idea there. <clears throat> Look down to verse 33 because we see how long that he, he hung there. Verse 33, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. So, if he, if he was initially hung on the cross at the third hour, according to verse 25, and he died sometime after the ninth hour, how long was he on the cross? He was on for six hours. And he hung there from 9 o'clock in the morning to at least 3 p.m. in the evening, which, according to uh, historians, was the time of the evening sacrifice at 3 o'clock. And when a person was put on the cross, his hands were nailed above the wrists or tied to the cross beam and his 
feet were placed together um, and nailed to the tree. And nailed to the main beam, that is. And the, the Gospel writers, though, if you think about it, never record that He was nailed to the tree. Why do we think that Jesus was nailed instead of tied up? Because many people were tied up and crucified that way. Well, we know from Thomas's record, remember when Thomas sees him after the resurrection, what is he asked to see? He says, Until I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. John chapter 20, verse 25. So we know that he was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, verse 14 says that our, the record of our deeds have been nailed to the cross. Okay, and the sense there is not that our, a big book of our, our evil has been nailed to the cross, but it's that Christ was nailed to the cross. He became the record of our debts. And based on a recent discovery, science, scientists have carefully examined the bones of a crucified victim in that area and they discovered that the nails would have gone right into the victim's wrist. And if you think about it, you know, if you put it in the hand, it would probably easily come out with too much pressure or weight being hung on them. So it's put in the wrist to stay there. And then also they found that the nails went through uh, the bones and, and that the, the legs were either positioned like this sideways with a little bend in the knees. So he's hanging like this. Or it could have been like this because of the way that the nails were in there. They gave a little bit of room in the knees so that the person could push up and get the breath that they need because the person needed to, uh, to breathe in that way. It was the most humiliating and excruciating type of execution. The Romans were famous for trying out all these different forms of execution and this is the one they loved the most. They didn't come up with it on their own. I think it was discovered by some other pagans, but but they did love to see the people suffer. And they wanted to send a message too, didn't they? Send a message to the convicted criminal that this type of thing is not tolerated in Rome. And they wanted to send a message to the the passers by. Remember, Golgotha is a, a city that or a place that's near the city of Jerusalem. And remember, we're here at Passover time, so lots of people are crossing by. They're passing by this, this cross, which is probably near a main road there. And so they would see the punishment that was being uh, carried out there, and they would look at the crime above that read, this is the King of the Jews. We see that in verse 26. The inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. It took a long time for a person to die. And as it as time went on, it became harder and harder to breathe and the, the person would have to push themselves up to gain a breath and then slump back down only be, to be in need of another breath within a short period of time. But, you know, victims often lingered for several days. They would finally die of thirst, exhaustion, and suffocation. They would not be able to breathe. And if a person lived for too long, you remember the soldiers would come by and break their legs so that they could not push themselves up to get a breath. See this in John chapter 19 is what 
what happens. The charge that came against Jesus was that he was usurping the government. That's why his charge above him reads, the king of the Jews. That he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. Last week we saw that the one who was mocked as the king was the king. That they were mocking him even though he really was the king. And in this verse we see another irony. The ironies continue. And that is the one who is charged as the king is the king. So the road to the cross is a very brutal one. It is um, unbearable. It will lead to His death. But I want you to see in verses 27-36 through the loneliness of the cross. The loneliness of Jesus Christ on the cross. First of all, we'll look at the spectators, the people who are passing by, the people who are watching this happen. In verses 29 and 30, and then verses 35 and 36. The mocking by the soldiers in verses 17 through 20 is carried out by the spectators. Apparently, they found out about a lot of these same charges. And so these were probably Jews passing by, perhaps during Passover. Lots of people in town, and here's what, they're, what they, uh, they say. Verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Their mockery is borrowed from what they had heard from the, the um, chief priests and the soldiers. And they say, save yourself. Matthew includes in his record, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, uh, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God as you claim to be, then save yourself. And in their, in their charge against Him, they actually do the very thing that they're charging Him. Blasphemy. And so we see another irony, that the one who is charged with blasphemy, Jesus Christ, became the object, or the ones who, who charged uh, this man with blasphemy, now were contributing or participating in blasphemy themselves. They were claiming that he was saying that he was God when he was not. And yet we know that he is God. And in their mockery, they actually were performing the very thing that they charged him with. Notice their confusion in verse 35. After Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, they think he's calling Elijah, verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. What Jesus is doing, we know from our translation here in Mark and, and the other Gospels, he's saying, My God, my God. But they think he's saying, Elijah, Elijah. So they're expecting him to, to be calling out for Elijah to come and save me. The word... Eloi in Aramaic sounds a lot like the Elijah in Hebrew. And so they confused them. And they continued his mockery in verse 36. They continued, This is still the, the spectators, the people standing by. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now this is not the wine mixed with myrrh, the stronger stuff that would subdue him and that would inhibit his ability to think. This was 
in ordinary, cheap, watered-down wine vinegar, probably offered to help quench him from his thirst. And so they would often do this to actually... I said one of the reasons that they die is because of thirst. And so some of the people would do this in order to prolong his suffering, to keep him alive longer. So after he cries out this way, they go and, and grab this wine, this cheap wine, and they say this, this in verse 36, will, will Elijah really come? Let's see. Let's sit back here and watch if your Elijah will come and save you. I'd like to see this. So they continue in their mockery. But not only the spectators, not only were the spectators abandoning him or making him lonely, but the religious leaders were as well. Verses 31 and 32. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. It wasn't enough that Jesus had already been condemned. That He was already charged with this blasphemy against the Jewish religion and this usurping of the Roman government. It wasn't enough for them. They continued to mock Him and to ridicule him throughout the process. They had seen him save others with their own eyes, and they had heard of him saving multitudes of even uh, more. Perhaps they even remembered that he had raised people from the dead. And so they cry out to him, if you can save others, then let's see you save yourself. We've seen you do it with others, but I don't think you can do it for yourself. Do you ever wonder if the chief priests were a bit scared at what Jesus could do? You ever wonder if they think that maybe in the back of their minds there is a possibility that He could come down from that cross? I mean, they had witnessed some pretty amazing things. But here, He looks so helpless. Why would He allow Him to get to this point? Why would He let Himself get to this point and not fight back? If He had the power... He would have used it by now. And so at this point, I don't think they're, they have any thought in their mind that He's going to come down off that cross. So they mock Him relentlessly. You saved others, but you can't save yourself. And here we see another irony. And that is, the one who saves others cannot save himself. The one who saves others cannot save himself. Now, he can save himself in the sense that he has the power. Remember, he says, if I wanted to, to the disciples, when, when the soldiers are coming to get him from Gethsemane, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legion of angels and have them come down and save me. I could do that. But you know, my kingdom is not of this world. I am living for more than what is here in this life. My kingdom is of another world. So he can save himself in the sense that he has the power, but he can't save himself in the sense that if he wanted to provide atonement for all people that was sufficient for all people, then he had to die. And so the one who can save others cannot save himself. He gives up his life for the sake of those who he, whom he is saving. The spectators mock him. The religious leaders mock him. 
And even the criminals on the cross mock Him. Look at verse 27. They crucified two robbers with Him, one on His right and one on His left. They're called robbers here in Mark's Gospel, but according to Roman law, robbery was not a capital offense. You could not crucify somebody for robbery. And so they must have done something more than robbery. But you remember, Barabbas was also called a robber in John chapter 18, verse 40. But we know from Luke and Mark that Barabbas did more than simply robbery, didn't he? He was involved in murder and insurrection, and those both would be capital crimes. So for them to be called robbers does not uh, identify all that they had done, simply as a way to refer to, to their evil. They probably did more than robbery. Perhaps they were involved in the same insurrection as Barabbas was, and, um, and they are being crucified justly for it. Notice their mockery of Jesus in verse, um, well, it says in verse 27, uh, 32, excuse me. At the end of the verse, it says, Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Luke records that one of them said, If you are the Christ, then save yourself. So we have the crowd saying, If you're the Christ, then save yourself. We have the chief priest saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself so that we can see and believe. And then we have the, the people on the cross, the criminals on the cross doing the same thing. Save yourself. If you are who you say you are, then why are you hanging here? Now, Mark doesn't record for us that one of the robbers later repented, remember, at, at the 11th hour, really, um, of his life. We see in Luke, I'll just read it for you, Luke Chapter 23, verses 40 and 41 says, Do you not even fear God? This is one of the robbers to the other. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So after initially mocking Jesus, one of the robbers actually defends Jesus and later asks Jesus to... to um, to allow him to be with him in paradise. And Jesus says, you will be this day. So the spectators, the religious leaders, and the criminals on the cross all mock him and abandon him, and Jesus dies there alone. But the most striking abandonment comes in verses 33 and 34. When the sixth hour came, Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, we see the loneliness that comes from his father abandoning him. Notice the timing of the darkness in verse 33. When the sixth hour came, that is high noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. The darkness came on the land. What is this darkness? Why is there darkness that comes upon the land? Luke records that the darkness came as a result of the sun being obscured. But we should not take this as a solar eclipse. 
that the, the moon is passing in front of the sun. Okay, we understand that this happens on occasion where you have the sun over here, this large beaming light, and the earth here, and occasionally the, the moon will pass between the earth and the sun and, and block the sun's light and create darkness. We understand that. But this is not a solar eclipse. And the reason I say that is because the Passover always took place after the full moon. The full moon would be when the, the moon is on the other side of the earth, right? You have the, the sun over here, shines its light on the moon, and then we can see it in, in full beauty, full light. So that's not what it is. It's some sort of supernatural work of God to make the world dark. This darkness comes at the height of day. It doesn't come early in the morning or while it's raining or something or, or late in the evening. It happens at the height of day when you expect the sun to be at its brightest and yet God makes it dark. And I think He does that to show His power. Turn to Exodus chapter 10. Because what the readers of Mark would have understood and what we should understand is that in the Old Testament, darkness always refer always meant something about God, about what God was doing. There is literal darkness in the Scriptures, but there's also symbolic darkness. And sometimes that darkness can be both literal and symbolic, that it represents something. Look at Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21. Leading up to the last plague of the t uh, leading up to the last plague where the firstborn are killed we have the plague of darkness verse 21 then the lord said to moses stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of egypt even a darkness which may be felt so moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of egypt for 3 days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. What was going on here? See, the darkness was literal. It was darkness that was so dark that it, you could feel it. It was They couldn't even see each other. It was so dark. And so it was a literal darkness, but it was also a symbolic darkness. And what was it symbolic of? What was God trying to show them? God was, was showing that there was judgment falling on the land, specifically because of their sin, because of the sins of Egypt, that judgment would come upon them. And so when darkness comes, it often refers to judgment that's coming on the earth. The Old Testament reader would have understood this. Now turn to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 6, because we'll see another time in which darkness will come. And it also is a literal darkness, but is symbolic of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. John writes, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
and the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man <coughs> hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Here we see darkness and God's wrath connected in this passage. That this wrath is going to come on the land because of God's wrath. You see that in verse 16 and 17. Because the wrath of the Lamb has come. The wrath of Jesus Christ, that is. And so the same phenomenon that will accompany the sixth seal judgment is the same phenomenon that accompanies the death of Jesus Christ, the same phenomenon that accompanied the judgment of the Egyptians. You notice that last verse in verse 17 in Revelation 6. The great day of wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Who can stand against God's wrath? Is there anyone? This is no coincidence. God will pour out His wrath on the world in Revelation 6 just like He did on His Son at His crucifixion. So turn back to Mark chapter 15 because what's happening here is not that that there's some sort of cosmological type of event that was just happened to happen at the same time. No, this is God's wrath being poured out on the land. And so in one sense, the wrath of God is being poured out on the people. That is, the land spread throughout the whole, or the, the darkness spread throughout the whole area. But we should also recognize that, that there was not some uh, light, light beam that, that shone on Jesus. That the, the darkness was upon the whole land except for on Jesus. No. All was dark. Even though He was sinless, He received the wrath of God as displayed in the darkness. But why? What's going on here? Why is God's judgment falling, falling on His innocent Son? Well, look at verse 34. At the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this passage, Jesus is fulfilling His purpose. Chapter 10, verse 45 says that, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ the Son of God, came into the world and took upon Himself the sin, the punishment, the burden, the guilt that we should have borne. That is to say that He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took upon Himself the penalty of our sin and died for us as our substitute. And this is evidenced by His cry, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? See, Jesus is expressing this profound horror of this separation from God. For when Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross, His perfect communion with the Father was temporarily severed. And He died just as a sinner would have died under the wrath of God. He took upon Himself the judgment that we deserved. 
He bore our guilt and our punishment. God's wrath was falling on Christ as He was paying for the penalty of sin, of which none of which He had committed. He was bearing God's wrath. That's what that darkness represented. It represented God's wrath being poured out on Him. And so that's why He cries out, Why have you forsaken Me? And so both Jesus died both physically and spiritually. Spiritual death is simply separation from God. So the infinite Son was separated from God for this period of time when God's wrath was being poured out on Him. And He did it so that you didn't have to experience spiritual death. He died spiritually and physically so that you wouldn't have to. The death of the cross is seen on verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. It's interesting if you've ever been around a person who is in their final moments, their final words are very full of meaning. They don't spend a lot of time. They don't spend a lot of time um, mumbling or or, or just uh, talking, shooting the breeze. They're talking about sincere things that are part of of what they are thinking. And so with his last cry, we don't have it recorded here in Mark, but Luke records two things. Well, Luke records one and John records the other. It is, Father, into my hands I commit thy spirit. And then John chapter 19, verse 30, his final words, it is finished. Apparently he said both of these and then he breathed his last. It's interesting that in a way... Jesus' life was taken from him, wasn't it? That he was killed. That he was unmercifully treated. But, Jesus says in John 10, verses 17 and 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. So there is a sense in which his life was taken from him, but there's also a sense in which he was like Isaac, that I'm willing to lay my life down. Because this is what my Father wants to do. And for Jesus, He was unlike most crucified victims. They would grow weaker and weaker, fall in and out of consciousness, and finally die. But Jesus still seems to have strength when He gives up the Spirit. He dies with a great cry, like a cry of victory, and then gives up His life. After reading these Gospel accounts of what took place in the cross, we as the readers come away with the understanding that Jesus was was innocent, but He was treated as guilty. He was rejected by many, but He was accepted by few. He was the King, although He was not treated like one. And He was lonely on that cross, even to the point where His Father abandoned Him. What will it take for you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you need some miraculous sign for for you to believe? Do you need to see something happen with your own eyes? Because that's no faith at all. Because according to Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is believing in what we don't see. Do you think the chief priests would have believed if they saw him come down the cross, come from the come down from the cross like they told him? 
you come down from the cross and we'll see and believe. You think they would have believed? Not at all. Pharisees were regularly looking for a sign. If you only show me this, Jesus, then I'll believe. Show me this great sign. If you're supposedly this Messiah, let's see it. But I would say to them and to you, if you need a sign, if you can't accept the miraculously inspired Scriptures that God has given to us and believe, then you would not believe even if Jesus or one of the angels came down on the platform as we speak. We have everything that we need for life and godliness right here. You don't need a sign. You don't need God to to increase your bank account or get rid of your ailness. You simply need the Scriptures. In fact, Abraham in Luke chapter 16, verse 31 says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. God has given us everything we need to believe His Word. And so don't harden your heart towards the Word of God. Make sure that you believe what is written there, that you know what is written there, and that you accept it as truth. And, and, and don't be a skeptic when it comes to the Scripture. That if I only see a little bit more, then I'll believe. If you're a Christian today, I would encourage you to trust in God's sovereign control over all things. That just as God did not rescue Jesus, as we see in verse 32, that He will not always rescue His followers. Follow the example of Christ that that even in the midst of persecution, in times when it seems like there is no hope, that God is in control and He has a purpose for it and all you need to do is trust in God and follow Him. Christ bore our sin. Christ became sin so that we could have the righteousness of Him be placed on our account and we could be made righteous. We could be counted or declared as righteous before God and have a relationship with Him. What a sacrifice that was given to us by our Savior. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Savior, You are our hope and our crown. You are the most beautiful possession that we can embrace because You bore for us the wrath of of our Father, of Your Father, when You did not deserve it. We deserved nothing but His wrath and yet You chose to go to the cross and gladly lay down Your life so that the the Father could be honored and that You could be honored in the cross. We do not deserve to have Your righteousness placed on our account. We do not deserve to have our sin placed on Yours. We deserve nothing but condemnation. But thanks be to God that there is now no condemnation for those who are in You, who have accepted You as their Savior. And so we praise You for going to the cross. 
and being willing to give of Yourself so that we could have a relationship with God. May we live for You and may we honor You in this church as we seek to establish and maintain and proclaim Your great truth and the greatness of Your sacrifice for us. May we never grow tired of living for You who died for us. We love You, our Savior, and we want to show You our love by our service. May You help us in that. May You allow the Spirit to have work, have His His work in our hearts to change us to love You more and to serve You more and to honor our Father who created us and through whom all things are held together. We pray in Your name. Amen. Hymn 100.